In the January issue of Reader's Digest is a fantastic thing that blessed my heart, and I thought it was just so significant because it came at this particular time when we're trying to work the book of Thessalonians. It has an article in it, How Far Are Those Stars? It took 11 months for Viking One traveling at the rate of 57,000 miles per hour to reach the planet Mars. 11 months, 57,000 miles an hour. We could almost get home pretty quick if we could travel that fast. <laughs> but just ponder how infinitesimal this distance is compared to the distance between Earth and some of the stars. Look at the chart below and on the opposite page. Isn't it simply impossible for any human being to comprehend the vastness of the mysterious universe? Mars was 220 million miles away. Viking traveled 57,000 miles an hour. It took them 11 months to take a look at it. Light traveling at 186.282 miles per second. The star Canopus, C-A-N-O-P-U-S, is 98 light years away. Polaris, the North Star, on this page, the page in the Reader's Digest, on this page would require extending it three feet, and every inch is laid off in 10 light years on this page. To encompass Andromeda, the nearest galaxy, go out from this page two and one-half miles in light years. To portray the most remote object in the universe, continue on for at least 12,000 miles. He magnified his word above all. His stars are some of his works. What a tremendous thing the word must be and how little we really know about it and how you can work that word and the more you work it, the more you stand in utter amazement of the great beauty and the depth and the integrity of it. As I read this today, I got to thinking, how can man believe that this kind of universe just happened by accident? You've got to be blinded with the devil's spirits. You have to be stupid and ignorant. And I don't give a cost me a quarter. <laughs> Boy, what anybody says. The only intelligent, honest answer to life is the word. And until men come to believe that word, just no use spending any time even listening to them when it comes to truth. They have a lot of ideas, you know, and so forth. But God's word is truth. And it's the greatness of that truth that stands above all God's creation. Did he say 12,000 miles? Good Lord, the earth is only 23 or 4 or 5, isn't it? Call it 60. And that is in light years, each inch. Ten light years. Whew. When I read Thessalonians, I wonder how God's going to do all this stuff. If God's creation of the heavens and the earth are so 
intricate, so beautiful, so comprehensive, how much more accurate even the greatness of his word must be. Therefore, whenever I use words like the word means what it says, says what it means, that many times just runs off of people's back like water off of a duck's back, and they think it's just a cliche or something, something I just say because it's in my vocabulary. But it's really the truth of the greatness of God's word. And Thessalonians sits like a the biggest diamond in the whole world at the close of all those tremendous church epistles. I was tremendously blessed today to see that there's a book published, Are the Dead Alive Now? I think that fellow on the back page needs to be replaced. <laughs> God, he was young. I was amazed at the great accuracy in this research piece of work. And of course, I haven't read it for a long, long time. I did today. I'm simply, simply amazed at how this thing is put together. I want the core to master this while I do Thessalonians. And especially those first chapters on the thesis. And then, you know, is death again is in chapter three. Those are some of the great things. If you will master along with the greatness of the word master, you know, quote end of quote. None of us ever master it, only the master masters it. But if you will endeavor to master with the greatest of your ability, are the dead alive now while we do Thessalonians, you'll have it a lifetime and work it so that it's yours, that you understand it, that you really know it. I think I told you on the film to read Thessalonians every day, didn't I? I'll do it. And then... This next week or so, you start reading it in another translation, see, so that you get the feel from some of the rest of them. Boy, just drive yourself into Thessalonians to the end that you drive Thessalonians in you. There's no person in the world's ever going to explain it to you. All he can do is set before you the approximation of the greatness of the truth in it. And then you just have to saturate yourself with the greatness of that word till where, you know, it, it, it's just such a great reality to you that you absolutely never have one doubt about it in your walk. I think I told you that the greatness of Thessalonians lays in the hope of the church because without that hope of the return of Christ, you have a great tendency of copping out. But I've never seen a man or a woman cop out on God or the, the household and the integrity of the greatness of God's word who have believed Thessalonians. So it's really something. I worked so hard on Thessalonians and know so little when I get through working compared to what's in there. If I could just teach you what busts out of my heart that I know spiritually, I'd be qualified to teach Thessalonians, but I don't have that ability. But I do know that generally, 1 Thessalonians is divided in the following manner. 
chapter 1-1. And that's the introduction. Then the next section of Thessalonians is 1-2 through 3-13. Bollinger divides it accurately in this category also. The corresponding division is chapter 4-1 through 5-25. And the final division corresponding with the first verse is chapter 5, verses 26 to 28. The whole epistle revolves around the great statement in verse 10 of chapter 1. To wait for his son, God's son, from the heavens. This is literally an action of renewed mind believing. To wait for God's son from heaven. No senses man's head can ever believe this. He may say it, but he cannot believe it. It takes a renewed mind believing. Because in order to receive this and understand it, you must know that by believing, you have to reckon yourself to have died and to have risen with Christ in newness of life, which is Romans. And by believing, which is the action of the renewed mind believing that I'm speaking of, you have to Reckon yourself as seated in the heavenlies according to Ephesians. The people who do not and are not waiting for God's son from heaven spiritually have to be ignorant of both their standing and state as Christians. So when we come to Thessalonians, we study Thessalonians from the inside out, not with our preconceived ideas let Thessalonians speak from the inside out and thereby we learn spiritually and we will understand it experimentally knowing then the believer's profession so that we are able to give a witness to any man of the faith we stand for with this background, let me say that the spontaneous outcome of true believing is always to wait for God's Son from the heavens. In John, Jesus said before he ascended that he would send the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of truth would guide us into all the truth, all truth. The guiding into the all truth culminates with the revelation given in the book of Thessalonians for the body of believers, the church. And with this fantastic knowledge, we are then clothed with this power from on high in evidence. Tonight you heard again, speaking in tongues, interpretation, prophecy, the evidence. That's the indication of the truth of Thessalonians. And it is that that should just feed within our hearts so dynamically that when we hear it, we always say, the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming. It is to wait 
for God's Son from the heavens. Believers or Christians have power in evidence, in manifestation, in proportion to the truth believed. Misdirected zeal, and we see so much of it in what's called the church today. Misdirected zeal always issues in increased confusion. And that's why you can't get the so-called body of the born-again believers together today. Because you can be born again of God's Spirit, which is the miracle of all miracles, and yet not be accurate on God's Word or know very much about God's Word. And that zeal without the accurate knowledge of God's Word only increases the confusion among the body where one Christian picks another Christian apart and so forth. And wherever you see this, you increase darkness. And that's why today it's just, our country, our all Christendom is just like it's covered over with a great cloud of increased darkness. And the word says wherever there is confusion, there is every evil work. And that's why the gospel says, if the blind lead the blind, they both get in a ditch. And that's why Christianity, so-called, has become in many instances the laughing stock of the world. And we in the way ministry sitting in this core tonight, who have the privilege to be alive at this time, and the privilege of being in the core, we must so commit ourselves and so dedicate ourselves to the integrity and accuracy of God's word that we will never allow it to happen among the people to whom we minister. Our concern in the way ministry is to know God and his word, to teach God's word as it literally is the word of truth. Second Timothy chapter 3. You all know it. So you don't even have to look it up. Quote it. All script, doctrine, reproof, correction, which is instruction in righteousness. Three categories, doctrine, reproof, correction. It says all scripture. And yet it doesn't apply to this particular book of the word. Because... The whole book of Thessalonians, first and second, basically nothing but doctrine only. There is no reproof, no correction in Thessalonians, just doctrine. Why? Because the book of Thessalonians deals with the gathering together, and that, in course, will take your mind back to 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see as in a what? But then how? Now I know in part, but then? With the return of Christ. When I was a child, I spake as a child, thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away what? With the return of Christ. And in that return, when our bodies are fashioned like unto his glorious resurrected body, in that return where there's no more sickness, no more death, no more sorrow, no more of anything that the adversary has thrown 
in our faces here upon this earth. You do not need any reproof or any correction. Having a body fashioned like unto his body, always doing the will of God, always being in perfect alignment and harmony, in perfect perfectness. That's why there is no reproof or correction in the book of Thessalonians. Only right teaching, right instruction, doctrine. Only praise and thanksgiving. Not only no blame, but continuous praise and thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I am amazed and grateful, amazed in the right sense, blessed, effervescing, bubbling, just excited, that in the days of the ministry of the early church, there was one church to whom this revelation could be given and shared with, that even to the church alive at that time, to whom he wrote this revelation, that he did not have to reproof and correct that church. And the other evening when I taught you, I saw this stuff, but I had to have more time to check it out. And I discovered that 1 Thessalonians 1.8, where it says that from you sounded out the word of the Lord. Not the word of a few screwed up believers with their own theological positions and ideas. But there sounded out from them the what? The word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord is the Lord's word. It's the truth. Sounded out. To the word their words were heard, it sounded out, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. And I checked this, this territory that's mentioned here in 1 Thessalonians 1.8 is as large as Great Britain. And this area was covered by the witnessing of the believers from Thessalonica all of the size of Great Britain. From you sounded out, that sound was the right believing, right doctrine. And whenever people, there is right doctrine, right believing, there will be axiomatically the witnessing. When people stop witnessing, they stop having right believing, right doctrine. Did you hear what I say? That's what I mean. When they cool off on the word, when they don't study the word to show themselves approved, when they don't allow that word to dwell in them richly daily, where they don't put God and his word first and they start cooling on witnessing, it's always wrong doctrine. Every place you'll see it as long as you live. If the witnessing is gone, the doctrine will be impure. Sound or right believing, right doctrine always produces fruitful witnessing. In 1 Thessalonians 1, there's a phrase in verse 5 that appears three times. That little phrase in there at the latter part of that verse just shook me. 
because I found as I read the word and studied it that the essence of this at least appeared three times in Thessalonians. Our gospel came and he weren't of an awesome power, Holy Ghost. And in much assurance, here it is, as ye know what manner of men we became among you for your sake. And I thought, what manner of men? What does that mean? What manner of men? What manner? What type of men they were among them? What would have been the difference there than in Rome or Ephesus? Now, the manner of men wouldn't have bothered me much to begin with had I not seen that it came up in verse 9 again. For they themselves report of us what manner of entering in we had unto you a second time. And in chapter 2, verse 1, for yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you. That it was not me. Three times. And I wondered what he was trying to say, what God's word was really trying to lay on our hearts. And I read Acts 17, which has the rise and expansion of the Christian church and the record of the work at Thessalonica, all capsulized in a few verses. But I read chapter 17 of Acts, and verse 2 was the answer. And Paul, as his manner was, what manner of men we were among you. Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them. He went in unto them. And three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the what? The thing that he brought, the manner of man that he was and men that they were, is they brought with them the word of what? That's it, the scriptures. And that's how they got the word in went in unto them. The only way you ever get the word in anybody is to bring the word to them. That was the manner. Thessalonica was a city of some 70,000 people. And into that city, he came with the scriptures, reasoning with them from the scriptures. It's really wonderful. That's the manner of men they were. They didn't go to town to spend half their time at the racetrack or playing pool. They went into that town to bring what? The word, the word, the word. He reasoned with them out of the scriptures, the word. That's the manner of man he was. Opening verse 3 in Acts 17 opening and proving that Christ must needs have what? Suffered. That's his death. So you see, the completeness of the word requires the teaching of the suffering Savior. Christ must needs have what? Suffered. It also requires the teaching of the risen Savior and risen again from the what? Dead. And that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is the Christ. And then in verse 7, 
whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, one what? Jesus. And that's the coming Savior. That's what they put him in jail for. So when I read the word here, what manner of men they were. They were men who spoke the word of God, the suffering Savior, the risen Savior, and the coming Savior when he comes back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In other words, he taught that they were dead and risen in Christ that Romans presents. Seated in the heavenlies in Christ according to Ephesians. And waiting to be gathered according to Thessalonians. That is the suffering Savior. It's the risen Savior. It's the coming Savior. It's the full gospel. The full word. Where the spirit has led into all truth. The church today, as you understand it and see it, as I understand it and see it, is in the reform business. You know, let's make the world a little better. Let's make the people a little better. You know, let's get rid of a little dope and that kind of stuff. Let's set up a nice social program of aid. Let's set up a department for the alcoholics. It's just Nothing more but, in the best, a reform program. Paul didn't go into Thessalonica with a reform program. He went in with the word. He went in with the word. The complete word of the suffering Savior, the risen Savior, the Savior coming back. He went in knowing that every man is dead in trespasses and sins without God and without hope. That the Gentiles needed a Savior as badly as the Jews needed it. And the Jews needed a Savior as badly as the Gentiles. Because in this city of Thessalonica, the Gentiles in their immoralities and their paganism, serving all kinds of idols and all kinds of gods. The Jews, on the other hand, in the same city, were denying the presence and the power of the Messiah. They didn't believe in God either as the father of his wonderful son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So into this city, he didn't go with a reform program. He didn't go with a social service program. He went with the word of God, the fullness of that word. And ladies and gentlemen, you don't preach the fullness of that word in one night. Man, he must have poured out his heart in that city of Thessalonica. We know that on three Sabbath days, he reasoned in the scriptures. Well, what do you think he did between Saturday and Saturday? Go fishing? If he did, it was fishing for men and women. Holding forth the word. Because when the greatness of the word lives so dynamically in your soul, you can't help but to speak what you are on the inside. If you're hot enough on the inside, baby, it's got to show on the outside. If you have the depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus within and really within, it's got to show on the outside. When you go into a community, if you're not talking about God's word, you haven't got God's word hidden in the resources of the depth of your soul, woman.
Otherwise, when you go in a community, you can only talk what you have inside. Sure, you got a rotten stomach, you got halitosis, I guess. My brother-in-law said, bad breath better than no breath. So, <laughs> boy, when you have that Christ within as a burning reality, and it, it's just not a bunch of nice head words. It's the word of God that liveth and abideth forever. More magnificent, more beautiful, more dynamic, greater than the furthest star. We cannot help but speak what we are within the innermost fibers of our being. We've got to talk Christ and the reality of the word wherever we go. It's a part of our breath. It's a part of our life. It's our walk. It's our talk. It's our smile. It's our sense of humor. It's us, period. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. That's Thessalonians. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> So he just went in and got the sinners converted. Told them about being saved by grace, not of works, you Gentiles or you Jews, lest any man should what? <laughs> I made the following note thinking about some of these things. Their faith and believing was their ship of life. Their love of God in the renewed mind was the unbreakable chain of life. The hope of the return was the anchor of life. And what a great ship to sail in. What a great chain to have. And what a great anchor. The hope of the return of Christ. How that anchors your life, baby. How that anchors you in your walk daily, man. It just anchors you. You do not shift. You are anchored, not blown about with any wind of doctrine. You are what? Anchored, both fore and aft, both bow and stern, just anchored. Don't like that? Anchor it on all two sides to boot. Yeah, really some. In verse 3, Thessalonians 1, you know. Remembering without ceasing your work, proceeding from believing, pistis. This work of believing in verse 3, see it? Verse 3, work of believing is what in verse 9 turned them to God from idols. The work of believing of verse 3 is to turn to God from idols. That's what they did for the Gentiles and the Jews in Thessalonica. <laughs> Secondly, in verse 3, you have labor of love. The labor of love got them to serve the true, to serve a living and true God of verse 9. And patience of hope in verse 3 is to wait for God's son from heaven of verse 10. Isn't that beautiful? All three of those things in verse 3. Work of believing, labor of love, and patience of hope. All are spoken forth and added to and explained in verse 9. Turn to God from idols to serve the living God 
is the labor of love. And in verse 10, to wait for his son, to wait for God's son from the heavens. The world isn't waiting for God's son from heaven. Even the church ain't waiting for him. They're sending him up there now. <laughs> they ain't waiting. They're sending them. Try. The church is not waiting for God's son for heaven. The church people are waiting for death. Waiting for death. Man, you got to be blind if you don't see that. All they preach is death because they say to, you know, to their adults, sunset years of life, you die, you go home to be with the Lord. They ain't waiting for the Lord. They're sending them. Boy, oh boy. They're not waiting for God's son from heaven to put the earth back in order. They're employing social programs and ecological programs and everything else to bring peace and safety upon earth. The word says when they cry peace and safety, sudden destruction will be upon them. The only way we're ever going to have peace and safety is to have the Prince of Peace, which is God's son from heaven. Then I hear Christian people talk about the last great outpouring that we're waiting for. Good Lord. We ain't waiting for an outpouring. We're waiting for the return of God's son from heaven. He poured it out on the day of Pentecost. This which you have seen and heard. You see why class when you really dig the word and the word digs you. You almost stand like a sore thumb in so-called Christendom today. Because Christendom believes that the dead are not dead. They think they are alive with Jesus Christ and God in the heavens and paradise. If you are alive when you die and you are in heaven or paradise, why would Jesus have to come from heaven to raise the dead? If you're already up there, that seems to me to imply that language Words are useless and you have no means of communication. Boy, when I think of what is happening in so-called Christendom, which is so contrary to what the word says, gosh, salvation has to be by grace and it's got to be eternal life or nobody to ever make it. It just has to be. Because it's just so opposite in so many instances of what the word says. To wait for his son from heaven. God's son from the heavens is literally the text. And that is called in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1. Our gathering together with him. That's what it is. To wait for God's son from the heavens is that which embodies our gathering together with him. This is the great epistle where this gathering together or as it's called also the coming of the Lord is spoken of. The word coming is the word parousa, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. 
On page 33 of this volume, it says, the part of the Perusa, the return of Christ for his church, is called in Second Thessalonians, our gathering together unto him. First of all, we must note that the gathering together affects only those who are born again of God during the age of the church of the body, which age is the period between the day of Pentecost and the first part of the Perusa. The unsaved of the church of the body period and all others before and after the church age will be resurrected when Christ comes with his saints. Those two prepositions, for and with, you have to just sharply see. No unbelievers are affected by the part of the parousa of Christ for his church, nor are the Old Testament saints, nor the church of the bride. It's really simple. The order of events in the return of Christ for his church of the body were revealed to Paul. The first part of the parousa is never technically called a resurrection. The reason it's not referred to as a resurrection is that some believers will be alive at the time of this portion of his coming and naturally will not then need to be raised from the dead. Those who are alive will be caught up in the clouds along with those believers who have just previously been raised from the dead to meet the Lord in the air. With this coming of Christ for his church, he will not come on the earth. He will simply gather the dead and living of the church of the body. When the mortals have put on immortality and the dead and corrupted ones have been raised incorruptible, all shall have a new body as is set forth in chapter 15 of Corinthians. The natural body, the body of a person before the return of Christ has its limitations, but the spiritual body that he gives at his return is like his resurrected body, unlimited in scope and in activity. The coming of Christ with his saints to the earth is also part of the Perusa, but it is solely related to the Lord's day. And then the footnote, the day of the Lord or the Lord's day is not a day of the week, but the day when the Lord from heaven does the judging. It is set in opposition to man's day of 1 Corinthians 4, 3, which is during the age of the church of the body, which is now when men do the judging. This part of the parousa must definitely be distinguished from the first part of the parousa when Christ comes for his church. The coming of Christ with his saints called in Greek apocalypsis is the appearing revelation, the advent and the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord includes the period of God's judgments. The church of the body will never have to endure this experience for it shall already have been gathered together. The believers of the church of the body will be spared the tribulation spoken of in Revelation is disclosed several times in the epistles. Well, it's just something. When that last part of the parousia occurs, at this part of the parousia of Christ, the church will already have been judged. 
not for punishment, but for rewards. Second Corinthians 5.10 in reference to the parousa for the work church says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This judgment seat is the bema, the place from which prizes and rewards are given for the things done. The church of the body appears before the bema of Christ to receive the crown of righteousness, rewards for deeds done for the faithfulness of our stewardship for him. We appear before the bema of Christ not to receive God's sentence of wrath or condemnation, but to have praise of God. None of God's born-again children in Christ will ever be judged as to their standing or anything else, for they've already been judged in the person of their substitute and mediator, Christ Jesus. Boy, in the day of the Lord's judgment, when all people have been resurrected, everyone except the church of the body will appear before the judgment seat, the bench from which God's judgment sentences will be pronounced. But the church of the body has been spared that. It's a tremendous thing, this parousa. It is tremendous, the coming of God's son from heaven. Boy, what a spring this should put in your soul. What a dynamic it ought to put in your heart, honey. What a thrill it ought to be just to be alive tonight and know this. Just to be alive in this day and time and hour. To know the great reality that we are waiting for God's son from the heavens. And that we have already passed from death unto life. We shall never more come into what? There is therefore now no one. Boy, oh boy, what a thrill. I tell you, I thank God I'm a Christian boy. Thank God I'm born again. Thank God I lived in this day and time. The greatest day of all history. Now, to be a part of that wonderful body of the church of the believers. Man, what an excitement. What an effervescence in the soul of a man or woman. Men say they want something to live for. Take a look at that. Women want something to dedicate their life to. Take a look at that. Is there anything worth dedicating to any less when something so big is available? Not for those of us who understand a little of what the word speaks above when it talks about us waiting for God's son. From it. This word parousa appears seven times in Thessalonians and I want to give you all seven. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 19. Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Parousa. 3.13. Even our Father at the parousa of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. 4.15. And remain unto the coming. Parousa of the Lord 523 unto the parousa of our Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 2 of 2nd Thessalonians in verse 1 now we beseech your brethren by the parousa of our Lord Jesus Christ verse 8 shall destroy with the brightness 
of his parousa coming. And in verse 9, even him whose parousa coming. Those are the seven places in Thessalonians that the word parousa speaks. And the word seven speaks rather loudly to me, the number of seven. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there is this wonderful statement where he said, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. This is a very key point in the book of Thessalonians. To not be ignorant of appears first in Romans 1.13. And there it says, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that all times I purpose to come unto you, to have some fruit among you, which puts that we're not to be ignorant regarding the mission and ministry to which the body has been called. For in Romans 15, 23, it deals about the ministry that he had. You know, in verse 26, it pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution to the poor saints. That's all involved in witnessing. Witnessing is also abundant sharing. Came out of the same area. Really something. The second usage is in Romans 11:25 of be not ignorant. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this what? Mystery. And the mystery is Israel's blindness. Didn't want us ignorant of that. The next usage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And there you really have to read the first 11 verses. But moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And in these verses, he doesn't want us ignorant concerning the camp of Israel as a type. The next reference is in 1 Corinthians 12.1. Now concerning spiritual matters, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. And the spiritual matters are concerning the gifts from God and the manifestations of the Spirit. The next reference is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For we would not, what? Ignorant of our troubles. And this reference here in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 refers to the trouble in Ephesus. And if you want to know what he doesn't want us ignorant of, you have to read Acts 19, the Ephesus record. They that walk godly shall suffer persecution. Do you think the devil's going to lay off of you? Or off of me or off of the ministry we represent? No. So he would not have us what? Ignorant. But you know something? When I look at the greatness of God's son from the heavens coming, I can almost stand anything. I hope, thank God for, and the believing for it. For man's days are like grass, flowers of the field. Suppose we live 70, 80, 90 years. So what? What's that compared to eternity? 
I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that even in the persecutions, they that walk godly shall suffer. Even in those persecutions, eternity is the goal. We can live abundantly now, be blessed, thankful, glorious, happy, joyful, all those wonderful things in this life. And even this life is like that. Even if you live to be 90, it's eternity that we have. And in that eternity with God's son from heaven, there'll be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more persecution. Oh, people, you see why I make the statement, you got to be stupider than stupid not to be a Christian. Why we got everything to win being a Christian and nothing to lose. And mankind has everything to lose and nothing to win without Christ. They got to be stupid. Satan has to so blind their eyes that if you dropped a cannonball on their stupid head, they wouldn't move. Otherwise, a man would just crawl out from under anything in which he is involved just to become a Christian believer. It's that big. And the next one, of course, and the final one, and that again speaks rather loudly, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others who have no hope for Christ's return. Every one of these, I would not have you ignorant records in the word, deal basically with the evil that befalls people because of what the world does to them, and he doesn't want us ignorant because the world needs the mission and ministry of the greatness of God's word. The world needs to know by your believing of Israel's blindness, the camp that was a type, the spiritual matters which are the gifts and the manifestations. They need to know the trouble at Ephesus and they need to know death. Six is the number of evil. And then to put these six great references in here regarding us not being ignorant speaks very, very loudly to my heart and mind. In chapter 4, in verse 14, it says, For if we believe, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. If we believe, sure something, Jesus died. In verse 14, you have three great truths. Believe, death, and the raising. I'd like to use the word resurrection if you didn't misunderstand it because I'm thinking of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our raising his resurrection. 
And the reason Jesus Christ had to be resurrected and not raised is because his ministry was unto Israel. He did not know the church of the body to which you and I belong. And it's Israel that will be resurrected. The church will never be resurrected. But he is that resurrected one. I hope you can clarify that. If we believe that Jesus died, rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. We believe he died, which is the believing, the death is the died. God will bring with him is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the rising. That's why in like manner, those fallen asleep. In like manner, if we believe, in like manner parallels off with the believing. Death to died, those fallen asleep parallels off with the died. The resurrection of Christ parallels off with the rising will God through Jesus bring with him. And the great 16th verse is really something to be looked at. For the Lord, what? Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. This word shout is the first thing that happens. The word shout is the word kalusma. K-E-L-E-U-S-M-A. It's a gathering together shout of command. Among the Greek writers, and this is interesting to me, among Greek writers, this is the word they use when they give the command to the rowers, the oarsmen in the rowing competition. You still have them at some Eastern universities. I don't know about the Midwest. When this command is given to the rowers, the word is kalusma. And it's the officer whose responsibility it was to give the time to the oarsman. You see, if I understand at all this oars stuff, you know, you do it at a certain time according to rhythm. Then you do it faster. He gives you the time. He sets the time. And then he directs the officer. What do you call the guy? Coxman? Coxman. Okay. That's the officer. In Greek literature, they refer to him as an officer. He's the one. And this is what interested me. He gives the time to the oarsman. That's the phrase that's used. And that I think I got out of Josephus. Really something. That's the shout. You get that? Isn't that neat? The shout is not God said, ah! <laughs> it's the time, the time, the time. Don't you see it? The time. It throws to my mind in recollection when the fullness of time was come, God sent his what? Only begotten son from heaven, born in Bethlehem. When the fullness of time comes, God's son from the heavens is coming back. 
That's the shout. Time! <laughs> Number two, verse 16. The dead in Christ rise first. That's the time. The dead in Christ rise first. The third great truth is verse 17. Then we which are alive, the living and remain, the living shall be caught up, caught up. Caught where? Up. You see, in the first part of the Perusa, Christ does not come upon the earth. Do you see that? He doesn't come upon the earth. He comes for his what? Church of the body. And the dead in Christ rise first. Then we which are alive and remain are caught up together with them. That one and two are simultaneously. Time. Dead in Christ, boop, boop, we which are alive. That's time. The oarsman, <laughs> got it? By the officer, time. You see, it happens at that one moment, but for me to teach it, I have to put it one, two, three, four. The fourth one is in verse 17. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. To meet the Lord where? He's never coming to the earth. He is only coming for his church. He is not coming with his church at this moment. He is coming what? For it. When he comes with the church, it's with his saints. And that begins the day of the Lord. When he comes in judgment, he doesn't come in judgment the first of the Perusa. He comes for his church to reward them. Not judge them in condemnation, but to reward them for the faithfulness of their stewardship in the body. And so shall we ever be with what? The Lord. And then comes this great verse, comfort one another with these words. When I finally get this all put together for you, I will give you an outline of this because... 4.18 says comfort one another with these words and chapter 5 verses 5 through 11 corresponds right with it and in verse 11 it says wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another both sections deal with comfort wherefore comfort one another with these words what words? The words, the shout, the dead shall rise, the living caught up, so shall we be together with the Lord. Comfort one another with those words. Comfort one another with the words of God's Son coming from heaven, from the heavens, for his what? Church. Comfort one another. You know, man has invented his own ways of comfort. 
and he's invented his own ways of being with the Lord. You know that? So they have taught basically you have to die to be with the Lord. That's what man's invented. Man is still being taken in by the same damnable lie that the adversary propounded on Adam and Eve. When he said, has God really said? Then he came up with that fantastic lie, thou shalt not surely what? Die. And the so-called Christian church has fallen right into the hands of that damnable lie. And the church teaches today that when you die, you're not really dead. You have just crossed the bar into paradise. And if you happen to belong to another denomination, you're in purgatory a while. You see, man has invented his own way of what he thinks is being with the Lord. But man's ways are not God's ways. And God's way to be with the Lord can only be at the return, the parousa. Death is man's way of teaching of being with the Lord. God's way of teaching to be with the Lord is the gathering together. Mary, the mother of Jesus, far as the word is concerned, she's what? Far as man is concerned, she's seated next to whom? God. Somebody's got to be wrong, people. Either God's word or man's talk about God's word. Somebody, sir, has to be wrong. And to my mind, it's just absolutely useless to talk about it. Words do not mean what they say and do not say what they mean. If man teaches that when you die, you're with the Lord and alive with him when the Bible teaches that when man dies, he's dead and waits for the return. If Mary is with the Lord now, we have no Bible left and our believing is in vain. If any one person outside of Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, is there now, our believing it is in vain, the word of God is wrong and my teaching to you tonight is blasphemy. You know, in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are what? Many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to do what? Now watch verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. People, why should he have to come again and receive people unto himself if the people are already up there? Then words are useless for communication. It amazes me how men who call themselves Christian can be so engulfed in darkness when the word of God is so simple, so plain, so real, and so accurate. In the 11th chapter of John, another fantastic truth. John chapter 11, verse 23. Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. This is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus Steele. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Her theology was right on. 
Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Context at the time of what? If he is already alive now, then Jesus Christ lied to Martha. And if Jesus Christ lied, he cannot be our savior. For he always did the will of God. He never lied. Ladies and gentlemen, we just have to make up our mind whether God and his word is true or man's teaching regarding what they think the word says. You and I have to believe what it says. For it means what it says and says what it means. And God has a purpose for everything he says, where he says it, why he says it, how he says it, to whom he says it, when he says it. With the coming of the Lord, there's that shout. The dead in Christ rise first. We which are alive and remain at that moment, the living are caught up. And so both the dead in Christ and the living of the body of the church are together with the Lord forever. That's the first part of the Padusa. The second part is after the judgment when he comes with his saints, which is the church of the body, plus his angelic hosts upon the earth. And that is the day when the book of Revelation begins, where the judgment begins. And in that coming of the Lord, there will be the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The just are the believers from the beginning of time until the day of Pentecost. And those following upon the parousa for the church. For after the parousa of the church, there will be people saved. But every one of them who is saved will be killed. That's the blood of the martyrs underneath the altar. That's why all Israel believers are dead. All in the book of Revelation will be dead. That's why the word resurrection only applies to those who are dead. Both Old Testament saints, book of Revelation saints, Old Testament unbelievers, church of the body unbelievers, and the book of Revelation unbelievers, for all shall be resurrected both believers and unbelievers. Now, people will say to you, well, with that kind of believing, you believe in soul sleep. We don't believe in soul sleep whatsoever. They ought to recognize what we say, not what we do not say. And we have said what the word says. You and I know better than soul sleep because we know what the soul is. It's man's what? Breath life. And the time you take your last breath, that's the end of what? So that's right. You're just dead turkey, dead duck. Awaiting the return, the parousa, the coming of Christ, God's son from heaven for his what? Not upon the earth, but we're caught up together with coming for caught up together with the dead, the live chain. That's why those tremendous truths in Corinthians, the dead have to be raised incorruptible. 
The alive is a mortal. The mortal must put on what? Boy, she fits like a hand in a glove. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Boy, what a day. What a day. And that day is throughout all eternity. The gathering together is throughout all eternity. Boy, we don't have too much time to visit in the here and now, but just think. All eternity, we ought to find a few minutes. What a day. People and the greatest thing God ever did is the church of the body. And you're sitting here tonight. This is bigger than Israel. It is that secret which was kept in God from before the foundation of the world. To think that God would favor us beyond Israel just blows my mind. To favor us beyond Abraham. To favor us beyond David who was a man after God's own heart. To favor us that are seated here tonight beyond all that. There are just no words in my vocabulary to say it. I simply stand in utter amazement and yet in utter thanksgiving that God would so love that he would allow me to be a part of his wonderful household. I'm thankful for the family, but boy, by God's mercy and grace, I'm going to stay in that household, which means to hold forth the word of God rightly divided. 